Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class, led by Pastor Jim Audi. This week, we're starting a new series on famous people in the Bible you've never heard of. We're kicking off this series with a Midian priest by the name of Jethro. Enjoy. Let's get into our study for uh, for today. Again, we're starting this little kind of mini series. I call it a mini series only because I don't really know how long it's going to go. Um, while we're in the process of kind of developing the next uh, bigger study that we will do, and so this one is called "Famous People You've Never Heard Of." Now, obviously, you probably will have heard of some of these people, but we're going to take a look at the story behind uh, folks. And then think about the application of that story, not only in the uh, specific context of the story, but then also thinking about it maybe in a little broader sense. And so the guy that we're going to be talking about today is Jethro, who was the father-in-law of who? Moses, right? And so Moses had gotten himself into a little bit of a dilemma with respect to his leadership of the people of Israel. And then Jethro, who's the father-in-law, came to visit him and noticed some of the struggles that Moses was having. And so then he was going to offer his opinion or his advice on that. So when we think about that in terms of the application of that is in the narrow sense would be for any of you who have adult children who are married, right? The dilemma often is as a, the parent of a married adult child or the in-law of a married adult child is what is your role exactly, right? And if you have thoughts about how that person is doing his or her life in whatever the realm is, okay? And if your opinion might sting a little bit, when you offer it, what are you supposed to do with that? So that's kind of in the narrow sense of the application of the story. The broader sense is just thinking in terms of us in a general sort of way that when in the Christian community, we have opinions about other people or about each other, what do you do with that? Is it okay? Is it legitimate for me to offer my opinion to somebody who didn't ask for it? Is there a way to do that? Or do I even, hey, is it even okay to do that? So that's the kind of thing that we'll talk about today, okay? So to kind of get us started thinking in terms of that, I want you to think about uh, performance reviews. So what experience have, most of you had experience with either giving or receiving performance reviews? Would that be a common sort of thing that people have had? Yeah, okay, so most of us are aware of that. Was that mostly yearly or was that more of a ongoing sort of regular periodic feedback sort of idea? What, what's the experience that you've had? Quarterly. Yearly. Oh, quarterly. Some had quarterly. Okay. And some have had it yearly. Yeah, I, I went a number of years ago to a, uh, to a seminar. It was actually a business seminar called Benchmarks. And it's kind of an industry standard kind of thing. And one of the things that they, they covered in this uh, seminar was on the effectiveness of feedback in terms of reviews of people's performance. And one of the things that they noted was that the history always has been to do it yearly, but it's actually way more effective to uh, maybe do it quarterly or do it monthly or something like that where there's more of a steady sort of feedback, uh, feedback idea. Those of you that have ever given, how many of you have given uh, performance reviews? Was that enjoyable? 
Was that? Oh, sometimes it was. Because you love inflicting pain on people or what? I mean, what was, what was, what was enjoyable about it? Well, performance reviews, it looks like this is being viewed as negative, but it's a positive. Yeah. It's, it's motivational, it's instructive, and sometimes if people don't understand what you expect from them, sure. then the best advice I ever got was, if you think performance is a straight line, you want somebody to go down. Yeah. The further you let them drift from that line, the more effort it takes to get them back to the line. So if you do an annual review, once a year, you just give them a slap upside the head. But uh, if you kind of work with them throughout the year, sure. then, then you have a, a much better relationship. It's a little bit more of a tweaking than it is a whacking. So it's kind of what you're... <laughs> Is kind of the way that you're describing that. And so, so had, had you learned, those of you that either were giving the performance review or were on the receiving end, did you discover that there are different ways to do it? And that the manner in which you do it actually makes a difference in terms of how well what you're saying is received. Um, I read somewhere that, that people that are in mid-management who are kind of in that middle place where they're on the receiving end of whatever flows downhill, right? That, and then often they're in the position to, to uh, also direct what flows downhill to someone else, um, that that's one of the most stressful things there is to do, is to uh, come upon that yearly review or whatever that is to give people insight or to give them feedback on how well they're doing in something. Now, I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but we do performance reviews here. Have you ever heard of churches doing performance reviews? Yeah, so here, when I came to Messiah, I had never received a formal performance review. Now, I'd always served in smaller churches. And so in smaller churches, the, the performance reviews are not formal. They're informal. I'm <laughs> going. And they're usually measured by, do people stay or leave? And they're usually handled in the parking lot, not in the church. <laughs> okay, that's just a, still a performance review, right? It, and to some degree, it's also uh, as people are exiting the church after Sunday, after the service. So there's always different ways that people do it. Well, when I first came to Messiah, I discovered that uh, uh, performance reviews are done here. They're done yearly here. Okay, Pastor Coleman does all of us as staff people, but there, there's also kind of an ongoing feedback sort of idea, all right? And so, uh, again, that's just kind of for you to know that this is something that's done, uh, done well. And it's not just done well, but it's, it's done in a very helpful and evangelical way. So uh, we all feel good about the uh, performance reviews that uh, we have received. At least I have always feeling good about, uh, uh, good about that. So... Do what, what, what? God. Oh, actually? Someone just above God, huh? Yes. Oh, the head elder? Oh, okay. Is there any other, like, group? One-on-one. There you go. Okay. Now, yeah, well, that's good to know. So it's just below God. It's just right, yeah, there's God. Yeah. So that tells you where I am way down here. Yeah, that's it. All right. So let's get into our uh, 
Let's get into our study for today, because when you think about it from the perspective of a corporate setting, you know, a business setting, that sort of thing, we sort of would expect that there would be some, uh, some feedback or some, some review given of how well somebody is doing in something. Well, what about in families? What about in families? Is there, is there performance reviews done in families? <laughs> Maybe there ought to be. Daily. Yeah, daily, right? I mean, isn't that kind of what parenting is to some degree? And also even in marriage, the sort of flow of feedback that comes from the wife to the husband. I mean, isn't that kind of how that works? Yeah, where the improvement is needed. If you marry a teacher, you get graded, right? <laughs> And that works. No, that really works. It's a helpful sort of thing to say you got an A plus in that, or if you got an N, needs improvement, right? <laughs> or something like that. That's easier to, to manage than a grade report or something, right? Like 90 or something. Yeah. All right. All right. So anyway, we're going to talk about uh, how do you handle that in family situations? All right. So let's start with verse so one of chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So it's a reminder that Old Testament names often had meanings attached to them. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses... I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Okay, a couple little notes here. Uh, Jethro was already a religious man. He was a, he was a Midianite priest, and we remember that the Midianites were the uh, ancestors of one of the sons of Abraham. They were a nomadic people, and they were already living in the area of... Uh, 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 would be on a map, would be kind of south of where Mount Sinai was located. So, so they were, it wasn't, it wasn't too much of a stretch that uh, Moses would have been familiar with them. Um, Moses went to live in Midian after he was expelled from Egypt. Do you remember that story? What, what was the precipitating event that caused Moses to have to leave Egypt and go and live in Midian? He had killed an Egyptian. He had killed an Egyptian uh, man who was abusing one of the Hebrews there. And he came to that man's defense. He killed him. And then he tried to cover it up by burying a guy in the sand. And, and that didn't work. And so uh, he ended up having to be expelled from uh, Egypt. So he went to live with, uh, with the Midianites. And that's where he met his wife, and that's where they, uh, where they made their home, and then that's where the burning bush occurred. So, so you can see where all those stories are linked together uh, for that. But because uh, Jethro was a priest of Midian, he was pagan. The Midianites were not believers in Yahweh. They uh, worshipped the Baal and Ashtaroth gods of the Canaanites. 
And so uh, it was very much, uh, very much of a, a pagan uh, a worship. And so what we're told is that the people at this point with Moses are encamped at the foot of the mountain of God. What would that be? Mount Sinai. And so they're awaiting the, the, uh, the revelation of God in terms of what, what is the next thing they're to do. And in the meantime, Moses, we, we learn in the story, is, is conducting himself in the way that he thought his, his uh, job description would have called him to do. So in verse 7, it says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of Egyptians. So what what we see up to this point reveals the nature of the relationship that already existed between Jethro and Moses. What clues do you get that there, there was already a relationship there and it was not one that was strained, at least as far as we can tell? What do you, what, uh, what do you pick up on? They were asking about each other's welfare. Yes, yes. So there was already this sense of, I care about you and you care about me. All right, what else? Well, Moses like shared everything that had been happening. Like it was he sharing his life. That's right. And what you get from that is Moses, as a believer in the true God, interacting with his father-in-law, who was a worshiper of pagan deity. It's sort of like what would happen if you, if you got married to a woman who had been raised or, or a husband who had been raised in a non-Christian home. And the parents were not only of a different religion, they weren't even of a, of a different denomination. It's like, oh, marrying a Catholic or marrying a Baptist or something. It would be like marrying somebody who was a worshiper of a cult or something. I mean, it would be like that. And yet notice what Moses's respect of his father-in-law is indicated by what? He bowed down and kissed him. So to some degree, what we can see is, is that there already is a, an honoring going on. There's an esteem that Moses is giving to his father-in-law, even though his father-in-law was of an entirely different religion that at least up to this point, maybe would not have been receptive to uh, the idea of uh, worshiping one God. Yeah. And it seems like some of that, some of that respect is returned from Jethro in verse nine, because it says Jethro rejoice uh, for all the good that the Lord had done for Israel. So what does that tell you a little bit about the way that Moses witnessed to his father-in-law? How does he do it? Yeah. By uh, reaching out and, and kissing him, but I'm thinking about the lesson today. If you don't ever reach out to people who are not necessarily of your faith and of your church, how are you ever going to bring the sheep home? Okay, I wasn't in early service, so I have no idea what it is you're talking about. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, what you're talking about. Okay. If you don't reach out to the non believers or. Um, you know, as you're talking yeah. about now, how yes. will you ever win the souls over and bring the So it, it does raise the question of at even a, another level, 
which is in terms of how does a Christian respond to or connect with uh, an unbeliever, all right? What, what's unique about this is that the unbeliever's in your own family, right? And that's a little different gig, isn't it? Because there's more at stake or there's more at risk in terms of the relationship and it could easily go south and in many families, in fact, us. Yeah. But, but just to kind of go back so that you'll be well prepared for the service. Oh, thank you. I'll pay attention during that time. Yes. General Price went in to the home of the center who had not paid his taxes. But when he was there, he learned the man who had not paid his taxes had given 50 percent of whatever it is he earned to, yeah. the, to the poor and people who didn't have it. Okay. So you find out things when you reach out to them, too. So if you could clue me in on the sermon, then I can tune out during that as well. So that'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, oh, thanks. Yeah. A teaser. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah, Phil. Moses just shared his life experience. Everything yes. that had occurred up to that. That is correct. That's all he's doing. And who gets the credit? Yeah. See, so what's he, what he's doing in that witness is that he's telling the story. That's all he's doing. He's telling the story. And, and there may be some motive he has to, you know, oh, I hope that uh, Pop can, you know, come around to know, uh, know Yahweh. But, but all it is is the idea of telling him what God has done and making sure that he says it plenty of times in terms of this is what the Lord has done, this is what the Lord has done. So he's not trying to talk, Mos- uh, talk Jethro out of his religion. You notice that? Because if you try to talk somebody out of their religion, that's disrespecting them. You're not honoring them. In fact, you're going to put up their, their walls are going to go up and they're going to defend their religion on the basis of the fact that they're feeling like you're being critical of their religion. So that's not what he's doing. All he's saying is here's what God's done. And then let God do whatever God's going to do with that in that person's heart. Okay. Somebody else had their hand up. Oh yeah, here. Oh, you were going to say what I just said? Why don't you say it again? Because I loved hearing it. Yeah. Oh, that was excellent. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, Gina. Well, I think a lot of times you'll have a bigger impact. And I think Moses did too, as far as on the actions that you do and not so much what you say when you're around somebody that's not necessarily a believer, if you're real condemning of them, Mm -hmm. but if you are around them, if you spend time with them, if you're just... You know, and the things that you do, mm-hmm. you might convey a stronger message than the things that you say. Yeah. And again, it was shown by the respect and the deference that he gave properly. I mean, again, it's a little different culture than we have. But, but if you think about it from that point of view, is sometimes the respect that in-laws want, it's a, bo- it's a two-way street, Right. And if, respect, if disrespect is given in some way, even if it wasn't intentional, that already begins to affect the flow back and forth of respect that comes back and forth. Yeah, Richard. I was going to say, he did not use any adjectives. In he what? He didn't use any adjectives? In describing God. Yeah. No, he didn't. You know, and, I, and I'm not sure. I mean, I'm thinking, the, I'll say the way we speak today you know, I think if I was in that position, I might have used the word God instead of Lord. I'm not sure what the difference is. That's probably that's a question. when you see it in caps like that in the old in the Old Testament, that's the name of God. So because in Jewish faith and, and, and belief, you don't say the name of God. 
All right, you don't, that would be blasphemy to say the name of God. A sinful person saying God's name would bring upon God's wrath. So, so the, the use of the name is, is presented by, uh, the, in the English here, Lord as caps. Okay, does that make sense? Sort of? Yeah, it makes sense, I guess. How would we say it today? We would say God. Okay. I don't think we have the same restrictions on us. I know, and yeah. that's the reason why. I, but I think that the fact that he didn't say, you know, the true Lord has oh, delivered okay. them. Yeah. Leaving those adjectives okay. off, gotcha. I think, was a great thing yeah. that Moses did. Because, again, it doesn't, it doesn't denigrate where he's coming from, right. all right? And sometimes I think, sometimes we go over the top a little bit feeling like we have to kind of defend God. And the way that we would defend God is by asserting his supremacy over all, everyone else. Well, the problem is when you do that as a believer in that God, it's sort of as a subtle way of saying we're better than everybody else. And people pick up on that, okay? They absolutely do. So again, it's a little bit of a nuance. It's not to say you shouldn't do it, but... But again, is to be aware, and I think particularly in our culture today, with almost everybody being hypersensitive about everything, right? There's a hypersensitivity to the idea that somebody will put somebody else down on the basis of religion, of race, of gender, of whatever. And so to some degree, I do think that the task of sharing the story is a little bit more is a little bit more delicate than it would be of walking up to somebody and saying, "Hey, Mary, are you saved?" You know, it, that probably worked in the 70s for outgoing extroverted people. It did, right? But that's a little bit tougher thing to do today because of how quickly people react, and then that reaction isn't limited to one person when it goes out over the airways and becomes now something that people jump on uh, quickly to. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so let's keep going. We're doing, this is really good, good conversation. So verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. What has just occurred? A conversion. Oh, interdenominational. Yeah, that's kind of what that was. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe they were all Lutheran, so it wasn't an issue then. Maybe, you know. All right. But at that point, what do you have? What has just occurred? Jethro's converted. Jethro has now seen on the basis of not just hearing what Moses said about what God did, but obviously the action of God was, was evident. And, uh, and he, turns, he turns his life around and he turns it to, uh, to the Lord. The next day, top of the next page, 13, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes 
of God and his law. So now what we have happen is the next day, Moses is going about what his job was or what he felt was his job. He had two things that, w- that was important for him to do, in addition, of course, to leading the people out of, out of Egypt and then eventually leading them to, toward the Jordan River. What are the two things that he is saying are his job to do? Do what? What is it? Okay, so part of what he's doing is acting as an arbitrator, right? When people have disputes with each other, then, then they bring that dispute to him, and then he decides kind of, well, uh, well, we should do this or we should do that. Okay, so that's one thing that he was doing. And then what's the other thing that he was uh, wanting to be able to do or needing to do? Yeah, Austin. He was uh, teaching, uh, inquiring people he would inquire about God. Yeah, yeah. So he was kind of acting as a pastor. That's right. So he was not only being an arbiter, but he's also being a, a proclaimer or a teacher of, of what God said and what God's uh, thoughts were. And because he was in daily communication, communication with God, that would make perfect sense that he would, he would, uh, would do that. But notice Jethro's, what, how does Jethro approach his son-in-law? He asks questions. He asks questions. That's a good one. He starts by asking instead of telling. How many of you are very comfortable telling people things? <laughs> and you find that you're dying to tell somebody something. Especially, and notice again, what Jethro did was he observed first. Notice, he observed first, he saw what was going on, and then he asked questions to probably clarify. But a lot of us who like telling, we have a harder time listening and then asking as opposed to assuming that, oh, I know what's going on, and I know the answer, and here's what needs to happen. All right, so we can kind of learn a little bit with respect to, to, uh, to Jethro, which again, I would sort of put that in the category of respect. He's respecting Moses enough to not just jump on his back and say, you know, you need to stop doing this, but rather he's asking the question, what is it that uh, you are doing? All right, now let's notice the, the nice little shift here. Oh yeah, March. Did he not respect him from the beginning when Moses wandered into his camp? And, and met him, there was, a, it seems to me from the story, there was a mutual respect at that time. Yes. It just uh, by the character yes. of Moses that he saw. So the character of Moses was already present in Moses, right, in terms of the relationship way back that had been nurtured over the years between him and Jethro. Yeah, I would say that that is part of this too. And that's a good, that's some good insight to give to any husband-to-be who's marrying into the family, right, is to try to establish some form of a respectful relationship with the father-in-law. And we get the, we get the clear case that that was, that was uh, uh, certainly here. You know, what's interesting about that is that when Moses came to them, he was basically a murderer or manslaughter, uh, guilty of manslaughter in some sense. He had a, he had a record. He had a past. But, but you know, that's not held against him. He yes, he did. That's correct. That's correct. So, so they would have nurtured that over the years, which says a lot here about how well this went. Okay? All right. So let's keep going. Matt, uh, verse 17. Moses, the father-in-law, said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. 
Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Now, notice how he frames his critique, if you will. How does he frame it? Does he condemn Moses for what he's doing? No. What does he do? He does. He uses, he uses words that indicate that he sees the difficulty that Moses is having. And so the focus is on his care and concern for Moses as opposed to the focus being on you're doing a lousy job, right? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Phil? Well, he's just, yeah, he, he shows concern, but then he goes into showing or telling him how he may be able to scale his, his entire... Uh... Oh, sure. He, great, he gave great advice, right? In terms of if you're going to delegate, make sure you pick well, Right. I mean, there were some, some spiritual qualifications, some, some character qualifications in terms of, of who it was that was going to be chosen to do that. But, but think about it this way. If, if Jethro had simply gone into, here's what you should do, and skipped all the part about care and concern for Moses, what do you think Moses' reaction might have been? Yeah. There you go, condemning me, you know, there you go. I mean, that's a lot of the reaction that younger people today give to, frankly, older, wiser people, right? And sometimes it's because the way that the wisdom is delivered ends up the person rejecting what's being said simply because it's not delivered well. Now, again, even if it's not delivered well, you, it might benefit you to listen to it, right? But we're, what, we're, what I'm trying to get at here is that what complicates it is when it's in families. Because when it's in families, it always turns into kind of an approval-disapproval thing. And if somebody feels disapproved by the parent or disapproved by the in-law, then what happens very often is, is that a wounding takes place and I'm not listening to it, even if it's the best thing ever for me to listen to. Now, some of that would be on me, right, to grow up a little bit, right? But some of it also is on the person offering this to do that in a compassionate, caring, and uh, a respectful way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Thoughts? Yeah, Mark. Well, it's interesting because I had a manager a long time ago tell me that if you bring a concern to me, then bring a solution too. Oh. And Jethro did some of that. He did do that, he did yes. Because yeah, he was concerned, but at the same time, he said, here's, here's a solution to help you out. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and there was lots of wisdom in there. Sure was. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. So again, you notice again that, that Jethro was a very skilled 
person in this. And again, he would have had some experience with it as well, having his priestly duties that he would be, would have been doing in, in Midian. Yeah, you have a thought? Uh, yeah, uh, one thing it says, what you are doing is not good. He's not talking about how Jews, uh, Moses screwed up. He's saying you're, you're doing it wrong. He's attacking the action. The action, yes. Not the person. So this raises an interesting distinction. Thank you for that perfect segue into what I was just going to say. Okay. <laughs> what is the difference between a criticism and a complaint? Criticism is of the action. Complaint is of the person. Just flip it the other way. The criticism goes after the person. The complaint goes after the action. Yes. So one of the things that I think would be a wonderful skill to learn in any relationship is the skill of complaining well. The skill of complaining well. Because it's so easy to start out with a complaint and then to move into some sort of attack on the person or a disparaging sort of tone toward the person. And I get it why that sometimes happens. Have you ever noticed that when your frustration level goes up, your patience and your compassion and your mercy toward the other person goes down? Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. You know, mercy takes a real hit when I am feeling like you're not listening to me or when I feel like you're not responding to me in the way that I need for you to or as immediately as I need for you to. All right. So to the degree that you feel disrespected, then that very often can cause or your, your willingness to be merciful in that moment, all right? So the idea of, uh, is to be able to distinguish between the two is, and then to be aware of kind of catching yourself in the act of not, uh, not doing it in a, a personal way. And notice again what Jethro's strategy or his, uh, in terms of what he says, he says, if you go ahead and do this, what will happen is, is that you will be freed up now to do the thing that is still your call in life to do, which is to settle the big matters that people have instead of the little ones, to be able to teach the statues of God, and also to be able to be an intercessor to take the needs of the whole before God and still be able to do that. So again, what, uh, what uh, uh, Jethro's doing is he's identifying that Moses isn't able to do it all. And because he was trying to do all these things to, to meet the needs of every single person in the, in the small ways, that was getting in the way of the larger tasks that God had called him to do. So we go down to verse 24. Look what happens. So Moses did what? He listened, right? He listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able, able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. What do you take away from the story? The beginning of the man. Yes. <laughs> and you could almost say that church administration, at least if we think about it in that sense, is God ordained, right? Is God ordained. And again, sometimes, you know, in pastor world, 
this again happened to me more when I was serving by myself that not on a staff is a little bit different situation, but you can get pulled into all kinds of little bitty things that turn into major big things like the color of the carpet and kind of where that banner should be hung. And, and it's amazing how often people's feelings get attached to the decisions like that, you know? And so the wisdom of finding people that are, are, are skilled in this, as well as have the heart, you know, the right heart, that is a wonderful blessing, wonderful blessing in terms of to be able to pastor in, in a situation like that. All right, so let's look at some of the applications here in the narrow sense. So the narrow sense is looking kind of specifically at the story uh, and then applying it to our lives. A parent in law has wisdom to share with his or her adult children and or their spouse. What would be an example of a scenario in which a parent or parent-in-law might have an opinion about the way that the adult children, married children, are an opinion about something they're doing? What would be an example of that? Just think of, you know, other people, not yourself, of course, but what? Parenting? Is that kind of the number one thing, do you think? That's one I hear the most of, is a, uh, a uh, criticism of the way that you're raising our grandchildren. And so you notice that the, the parents don't count anymore. It's just it, they're the keepers, but that's all they are, right? How, how our grandchildren are going to turn out based on how you are parenting, uh, parenting them. Is there any other one that, do you know what the number one complaint is from the position of the adult married child who's married uh, toward the in-laws and toward their own parents. Do you know what the number one complaint is? At least the one I hear the most of is uh, giving too many presents at uh, Christmas and uh, birthday. And this idea that I'm here to spoil my grandchild to, uh, and it in, in is taken as a disrespect of the way that the, ch- the adult children want to raise their own kids. So is that legitimate? Oh, no, that's not. Yeah, Yeah, but it is. It is legitimate. So so each side sort of has its own list of things that they feel uh, disapproval of toward uh, toward the other. And so it does raise the the notion of that maybe we can learn something here. All right. So, again, kind of noticing taking a lesson from Jethro. He noticed first and listened second. Then what he did was he avoided judgmental language like guilt tripping. So how many of you ever like said something that was designed to evoke guilt in someone else? Oh, yes. Yes. Right. And you knew what you were doing when you said it. Right. Yeah. So an example of that is after all I've done for you. How about that one? Oh, we love that one. Yeah. And then the other one, I raised you better than this. How about that one? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sue, you had your hand up. Um, I was just going to say back uh, about the presence. Yeah. Oh, the presence part? Yeah. So, uh, what if you can go the opposite way and say, you know, the parents are giving too many presents to the kids. Oh, yeah. The grandparents <coughs> have been told not to. Yes. But the parents overdo. Yes. Yes. So overdue and underdue is kind of the dynamic that exists in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so where respect or disrespect comes in is if the parent says 
this much and the, uh, and the grandparent says this much and then does it. What do you do with that? And so then that is what creates that, that, uh, that, that uh, uh, tension there. All right. Th- yes. Yes. Oh, oh, would you please? Yes. So Britt kind of put it to me this way. You're talking about your son? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said, everybody buys them so much. Victoria and I can't buy them anything for Christmas. So it takes our joy away. That was wonderful guilt that he put you on. That was so good. That was beautifully delivered. Yeah. And so then what did that result in? What was the action? that? They... I gave them one thing each. Yeah. I asked them if this was okay. Yeah. And, you know. Yes. So what you did was number three, you respected their no. See, when somebody puts up a boundary, that's what it is. It's a no. There's a yes in there too. Yes, this or no, that. But the key is to respect it. Even if you don't like it, even if you feel like it's wrong. Okay. Now, obviously if there's abuse, that's a whole different thing, but we're talking about stuff where it, the issue is that you as the parent are saying this and I, as the grandparent in law uh, and or in law am saying that. And so even though it might hurt your feelings a little bit, it still is the idea of respecting partly because respect is the bigger prize. And the beauty of respect is, is that the more that you respect someone's no, the more they're willing to come to you later when they have a, a situation they, they don't know what to do with. But if you don't respect the no, there's no reason why they should come to you. Okay? So that's something to think about. Yeah, Kathy. When you're, I kind of put myself a note, sure. and I think we need to remember, older isn't always wiser. Pardon? Older isn't always wiser. That's correct. And I think sometimes in this dialogue with our in-laws, uh-huh. children-in-laws, or yes. whatever. We need to remember they may have wisdom. We don't know. We have to learn. That's right. And that, um, you know, and sometimes you just sort of have to shut up and listen to them because we don't know everything. We have to be willing to admit that yeah. they may have a better idea. Did you hear what she said? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a two-way street. But the question is, how do we make it easier to hear each other rather than make it harder. You listen, you have two ears and one mouth. That's kind of what we've learned with our, uh, yes. dealing with our in-law. I mean, he's yes. a great guy, but, yeah. you know. That's two right. Two ears, one mouth, shut up. The, the other part, <laughs> and the other part that you want to remember is, is that if you are critical of the in-law, then you're, by ne- you're also, in an in implicit way, critical of your own son or daughter who picked that person in the first place. So you got to watch that. See, you got to watch that because, because the wounding is not just in terms of who it is that it hears it or is directed to or about, but it's also the other person as well. So it's to be mindful of those things. Yes. Hand up. No hand up, just yawning. Gotcha. They, I know, I'm feeling that I'm hitting my wall already and we're not even there yet. All right. So let's look at the broader sense. Got a few minutes here. Is it justified for Christians to critique each other whether or not they have the authority to do it? Now, authority in this case would mean that if you're, it's your boss or if it's, you know, there's some line of official authority. It's, yeah, obviously, there it would be, okay? Critique, performance reviews, stuff like that, okay? And so, 
when it comes to this issue of critiquing or uh, and not falling into criticism, very often we go to a couple verses in the Bible, Matthew 7 being one of them, right? People say this all the time, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Okay, so there's a lot of wisdom to that, correct? Now notice, he's not saying to not be discriminant, to not be uh, discerning. But what he is saying is to be mindful of the manner in which you do it. And if the manner in which you do it is harsh, then it's going to come back around to bite you. That's the idea. See, if your brother has a speck in his eye, do you ignore it? Not if you have a log in your own. Well, if you have a log in your own, you, it's pretty hard to see the speck in your brother's eye. But what is, what, is the, what is my duty, I'll use that word duty, I guess, responsibility toward the, toward the person who has the speck in his eye? To help him with it, but in order to help him with it, what's my first step? To deal with the log in my own eye, right? And so I didn't include that next verse, which actually says, take the log out of your own eye, and then what? You're in a better position to do what? To help the, sp- the brother with the speck in his eye. Okay, so that, 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 we're not, that responsibility is not re- removed. Now, the other verse is kind of interesting. We don't often look at this. 1 Corinthians 5 what have I to do with judging outsider? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. That almost sounds contradictory, doesn't it, with the Matthew 7? We do have a responsibility to each other. We do, is the point. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, what they're dealing with in the Corinthian church is incest. That was the issue. And it was well known in the congregation this was going on. And Paul hears about it later and he goes, this is terrible. You guys are letting this happen. And it's, it's casting a terrible witness to the community in terms of what's okay to do in, in, as Christians. So he's saying to, that, to judge them, to ju- judge the, the family that's doing this. And that's, that was the first excommunication in the history of the early Christian church. So there is an element of judgment but there is a difference, I think, between judging as discernment and judging in a condemning form. And sometimes the way we come across to each other communicates disapproval, uh, you're, not, you're not doing enough, you're, you're not living up to whatever, a lot of guilt, and there's not much mercy in there. And I think that's what we're talking about here, is to do it in a way that makes it easier to hear. So for the one being, uh, for the one doing the critiquing, to be mindful of that, for the one being critiqued, uh, thinking in terms of what, what have you discovered is a helpful way to, to receive the wisdom that somebody else gives you, even if it stings? What have you found that you have to do in order to be able to do that? want to hear for some other people here. Any? Okay, Austin and then, uh, and then John. Uh, I think an appropriate thing is to thank them for the criticism. Thank them for the... Or, would you write this down, please? That would be excellent if you would. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, to thank them thank for them. their criticism. Yes. And to show that you respect them, even if you do or don't um, 
agree with the at least think that they would come up and be considerate enough to tell you, especially if they do it in a mindful manner. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, I'm I'm kind of thinking in terms of what if they don't do it, they don't deliver it well. They're harsh or they're kind of bitey. Some people are very blunt, you know. They say, well, I'm just telling the truth, and then they blast you, you know. I mean, and so then there's this sort of moment of, whoa, I don't know what to do. So so what what would make it, yeah. For me, I, I usually just have to walk away and think about it for a while. Okay. But you also need to get back to that person. You yeah. say, you gave me some things to think about. Yeah. And to, you know, follow up to show respect. But okay. Sometimes in the heat of the moment, it's best not to say anything. That is correct. And so, and it's also good to signal to the person that you're not abandoning them, like, huh, fine, and walk away, but actually you're, you're, you need to go think about it and then be able to come back. So that's, that, that's also an excellent way to do that. And then for those being critiqued or, or those doing the critique to think about that in terms of being mindful to, to uh, make it easier. One of the things that the, one of the questions that I like to uh, coach younger couples to do is uh, when to, to ask each other the question routinely. And we could, uh, those of us that are a little bit older can do this same thing. All right is to ask each other the question, if there is something that you are doing that bothers me, how would you like for me to bring that to your attention in a way that still respects and cherishes you? Now, the assumption there is that eventually you will do something that will bother me, and I can't overlook it, right? Some things we have to overlook. We don't have to make a big deal about everything, but there are some things that you, you know, you can't overlook. So when I get to that place that I can't overlook it, I'm going to want to tell you about the things that you're doing that are bothering me, yes, right? Sir. And all I want to know is, is how to deliver that to you in such a way that you still feel respected and you still feel cherished because that way it'll make it easier for you to hear me. Okay, so I need for you to tell me right now how to do that. Coffee and cookies. Coffee and cookies. Okay, good. That's good. Caffeine, caffeine and sugar. Right, okay. All right. And then do you want me to say something nice about you before I tell you the thing that bothers me? Or should I just go right into it and then let you know what it is? If you and I have a relationship for a longer time, I probably already know you're sincere. So just get right to it. Just get right to it. Okay, get right to it. And it would, it, do you want me to be loud when I say it? Or do you now notice what I'm doing? What am I doing? I want clarity from him on what is respectful and cherishing to him, not what I think it is. See? And by doing it that way, I have a better chance of success. The next time we meet, I'll be telling you what it is that you're doing. Um, thank you. That, uh, so that's a way to do that, all right? Sometimes we don't do that. We just assume, oh, I know what respect is. Oh, I know what it is. It's speaking the truth. Blasting you with the truth, right? Yeah. Yes. What's that? She said it to me, and that it depends on who is giving is critiquing you. Yes. Who is saying? Oh yeah. So that he, John, made the point that he knows you, and yeah. he knows how what what your heart, where your heart is. That's right. Someone else, he would have to ask for some other type of that's right approach. That although yes, well, but although if I let you know how to approach me when there's something I'm doing that bothers you. 
whether you know me or not, at least what you do know is what will be likely to keep me from putting the wall up immediately. So an example is what puts the wall up immediately for me is being blindsided. If, if I don't see it coming and then whammo, here it is. My immediate response is my brain shuts down. I can't think of what to say and I want to run away. Now I'll come back eventually, eventually, right? But still, see, so some of it is knowing yourself, right? And thinking, okay, what is it that will make it easier for you to tell me the bad news that I'm not perfect? That's, have you noticed that's bad news to figure out that you're not perfect, right? And so it kind of stings. I know, Tom, it's hard to believe. I know. But, it's, but because it is, there's a natural defensiveness that goes up and says, well, I, I don't want to hear the bad news that I'm not perfect. Well, that is not going to go well in that relationship. We all have to have a way to do that because we all have stuff that bothers, each, bothers us. Yeah. I think it's the hardest thing is the timing. Timing? Because even with my kids, I have to, you know, I may want to say something, but I have to wait till they're receptive. Or if it's with your spouse and you're saying, just as you were saying, yeah. you know, that you have to wait till they're ready to do it so they feel respected. But you could ask them. True. You could. You could say, you know, is this a good time? Because I got a few things I would like to talk to you about. And to some degree, we all would avoid it. But if it goes well over time, you create a track record of it going well. It's actually more likely that it would not be pulling teeth to get it to happen. Right. Okay. I have to stop now. This is such great discussion, but I have to go to work because now I'm eager to find out what the sermon really is about. (laughs) So uh, I want to do that, but uh, good stuff today. And next week is Naboth and under John's uh, leadership, have a good time with, uh, with that. So let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together and the way that you speak to us through your word. And we think about that not only with respect to those of us that are here, but also those of us that are listening on the podcast as we think in terms of the way in which you bless us through your word. Relationships can be hard, Lord, and sometimes our urgency to to love each other and to be there for each other causes us to get a little rude or just get a little bit uh, blunt with people. And sometimes uh, in the effort to speak the truth, we can be a bit disparaging. We're so grateful that we're forgiven for that, but uh, also that we're empowered to, uh, to do a better job with it. So, Lord, I simply pray that you be with all of us as we uh, share this with each other, as we work at it, and we seek to, uh, to be able to uh, be that blessing with the wisdom that we offer. Watch over us this week, dear Lord, until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, 
Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.